Father, it is good for us to be still before you, to quiet ourselves and our hearts, to do our best in preparing to hear from you. We do this because we respect your word. We know that it is living and active and that you would speak to us through it. We do this because we know that you have ordained the public proclamation of your word to be most effective in our lives. That uniquely, through our gathering, your spirit carries your word into our hearts and minds. So we take time. We ask that you would protect us from distractions. We ask that you would make your word most clear to us. We ask that you would apply it to our lives, help us to understand, and to be molded and shaped and formed by it. We ask for this mercy and this grace because we want to behold you. We want to meet with you. We want to honor you. We want to be transformed by you. Would you be most glorified now? In Jesus' name we pray and ask. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles with me if you would please and open them to Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> New Testament book of Colossians chapter 1 verse 21. We've spent the last several weeks walking through verses 15 through 20 where Paul is intentionally elevating Christ before us in our hearts and our minds and, and before our eyes. And we must take verses 21 through 23 this morning, we must take them in light of verses 15 through 20, where Paul has called Jesus the Lord of Revelation. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the Lord of creation, the Lord of the church, the Lord of new life, supreme in all things, verse 20, reconciling all things to himself making peace by the blood of His cross. This grand, glorious, wondrous, magnificent picture of Jesus that Paul has forced us, con confronted us with, really, is how we are to interpret verses 21 through 23. Let's look in verse 21. Read these three verses and then we'll back up and walk through them. Paul writes and he says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Verse 21, Paul begins by outlining a humanity, really a sinful humanity. And let's begin with the transition that Paul begins with and uses in verse 21, this phrase, and you, because uh, it really forces us to confront ourselves. Paul makes this text very personal. Uh, he's coming down from this lofty mountain of understanding Christ in verses 15 through 20, now to look directly at our own hearts. As if his eyes were gazing up into the peaks and heavens of 
Jesus' majesty, and now all of a sudden he shifts them to look directly at his readers. Now for you. See, this passage is meant to be um, lowered in some sense to our level, addressing our hearts, confronting us head on, and drawing a very contrasting picture between the Jesus that we read in verses 15 through 20 and the people we read of in verse 21. Here's this grand and glorious and powerful and wonderful and and all authoritative Jesus. And now let's talk about you. See the, the Jesus we encounter in scripture. As grand and glorious as he is. He's still a Jesus that we must deal with personally. He's not a figure who is simply removed from us. He is one that we must deal with. He's a Jesus that we must respond to. Whether good or bad. He forces out of us a response. And this is where Paul is coming in verse 21 now for you and what this Jesus means for you and what this Jesus has to do with you and what you have to do with this Jesus so let today's passage as Paul intends for the Colossian Christians and as God intends for you and I today let it be intensely intensely personal in light of the glorious Jesus described in the previous five verses. Paul uses past tense language again here in verse 21. And he'll transition into verse 22 to use present tense language. He's describing these Colossian Christians as they once were. That's the phrase I would draw your attention to. You once were like this. You once were this way apart from Christ. He does this not simply or solely to remind them of the miracle that Christ has brought about in their lives or, or where they have come from, but to presently remind them of the serious need they have to continue clinging to Christ. In other words, if you let go of this Jesus that I've just described to you, that I've just elevated in your heart and mind, then you're back in your place of hopelessness. Remember from where you've come and what it was like before you encountered such, the, such a divine Savior. Then he uses very unique, specific language to describe these Colossian Christians and really all humanity in our condition either as believers before Christ or some of you, your condition now because you are still apart from Christ. He says to them, you once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Such language ought not be lost upon us. And these descriptions are very stern and forceful. That word alienated um, means separated in some sense. But it doesn't mean separated by accident. It means diligently and intentionally separated. It's not that our sin separated us from God by accident. It's that we are separated by God intentionally because of our sins. Apart from Christ, all humanity is alienated from God. Removed from His presence. Removed from His glory. Removed from His fellowship. Removed from His love. Removed from His joy. 
I referenced last week, and I'm going to reference again later in this sermon, Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, where Isaiah writes, we are told, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He does not hear you. In fact, flip over with me to Isaiah uh, chapter 59, because there's more to it than just verse 2. Isaiah 59, verse 1, 2, and 3 gives us a, a better uh, whole picture of what's actually being said. <clears throat> Isaiah 59, verse 1, we have, we have and are given this description of God. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is His ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear you. Verse 3, Because your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, and your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters, wickedness here's what these three verses are telling us in whole together here's God and God is not uh, short that he can't save he's sufficient to save and God's ear isn't dull that he cannot hear the issue between humanity and God is not God it is humanity and what has separated humanity from God is not that God has changed or God has become unloving or God has become unmerciful or God has neglected or God has ignored. It's that humanity has alienated themselves from God's presence. God's arm is long enough and strong enough to save every time without doubt. And God's ear hears Every time, without doubt. But your iniquities have separated you from God. My iniquities have separated me from God. We are a people who are alienated apart from Christ. And we have no fellowship with God in our sin. And that alienation is not just a accident it is by divine design and divine proclamation God is no less righteous just or good in casting off sinful humanity in fact if God were to open the earth right now and swallow us all into eternal condemnation he would be no less righteous no less good for doing so we have separated ourselves from God and take note of the ownership and the responsibility that ought not be lost on us. It is because of us we are removed from God. Paul goes on to describe humanity in verse 21. He says that you're hostile in mind or you were hostile in mind. For some of you, you're still hostile in mind. Hostile in implies a, an active sense. But it's intriguing to me that the phrase is hostile in mind and not just hostile in action. It's not that Paul's saying we're not hostile in action because our sinful deeds are very hostile to God. More so, I think he's saying your general disposition 
is in hostility to God. Your perspective, your outlook, your worldview, everything about you, everything that makes you you, without the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, is in hostility to God. Your general direction is in hostility to God. So that you're left doing the only thing you can do, evil deeds. Such a powerful word in my estimation. The word wickedness is not used or unrighteousness is not used or ungodliness is, is not used. The word evil is used. There's a special reservation for the word evil in English language. It's the height of all things wicked. Our little white lies, our harmful lustful glances, our victimless gossip, our quick slander and loose tongue. Church, that is not some simple mistake that we commit as sinful creatures. That is evil deeds in the sight of God. The Bible goes on in other places to use even more stern and forceful language like Romans chapter 5 verse 10, God calls us enemies. I think that's what's overall intended here. To be alienated, to be hostile, to be doing evil deeds, which is the exact opposite of God, means that we are, in short, enemies of God. Which means we can say in every way, in every action, in every thought, in, again, our general disposition, we are fundamentally opposed to God and against God. That is the plight of humanity. That's the the human condition apart from the intervening grace and redemptive work of Jesus Christ. If Christ has not caused you to be born again, if He has not wondrously and graciously changed your heart by His mercy alone, then you are generally opposed and against all that God stands for, even God Himself. Now let me continue on because I want to press this point even further because I'm personally convicted that what the church needs and what humanity needs is not to be built up or encouraged or have our ears tickled. Our ego and pride does enough building up of ourselves. I think what we need is humility by virtue of understanding the very wickedness of our sin. So if I focus there, that is why. What you and I need is a fresh humbling in understanding just how alienated we are. So there's three other things I would bring out of this verse, verse 21, that I think we're taught. Number one, I've been hitting on it. This verse tells us just how serious our sin is. The very gravity of our sin. It is no light or trivial matter, is it? The smallest ounce of sin to the greatest act of evil and wickedness you perform, all of it separates us from God. All of it classifies us as hostile. All of it is, is under the category of evil deeds. It removes us from the glorious, life-giving presence of God. I've recently come across and enjoyed a verse in Psalm chapter 16. It came to my mind this week. It's a verse that tells of the blessings in relationship to God. It's Psalm 16, verse 11, it says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures 
forevermore. I love that verse. But that verse is not true for the sinner who's separated from Christ. You're alienated from this kind of God. Alienated from this presence. You do not know the path of life. You do not know the fullness of joy in the presence of your Maker. And you do not know pleasures forevermore that drip so lavishly from the hand of God. You're alienated. And you're alienated by virtue of your sin. Oh church, you might be thinking, I know this truth, I do not need to be reminded. But yes, you do. We need a fresh reminder regularly of the very weight of our wickedness before a holy God. For that itself informs our adoration of God, our gratitude before God. But it starts with this reminder that sin is a big deal. And it has removed us from God. And not only removed us, but pitted us against Him. The second thing verse 21 teaches us is it tells us how God views us. Not only reminds us of the weight of our sin and using the words alienated, hostile, and evil, but it tells us the way that God views us apart from Christ. This is God's Word. So we may rightly say what God's Word says is what God says. And this is what God says about humanity apart from His Son. This is not Paul's opinion or description. It's certainly not your pastor's opinion or description. This is Holy Spirit-inspired opinion, description. Humanity, in God's mind and eyes, are alienated from Him, hostile to Him, and evil. You can flash back to Genesis chapter 6. As God describes humanity, the condition of humanity before the flood. Which, by the way, after the flood, the condition of humanity didn't change. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, what does God say? Every intention of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. What's God's estimation of the condition of humanity? What's God's assessment of your heart and my heart and every other human heart? What's God's opinion of our plight without the redemptive work of His Son? He says evil continually. From the very core and depths of who you and I are, God's assessment is that we are alienated, hostile, and evil. It's a fearful thing to live life without the refuge of the Savior. Without the assurance of a loving Lord. Jesus says in John 3, I believe it's verse 36, whoever believes in Me shall have eternal life. But whoever does not obey me shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It is a frightful thing to be under the wrath of God and apart from the shelter and refuge of a forgiving Savior. 
Because the only thing to conclude is that if you are not under the saving grace of Christ, then God sees you as alienated, hostile, and evil. God knows the truth of who you and I are. He knows and tells us how wicked we are in our actions, how depraved we are in the very core of our being, how vile our intentions are, how evil our hearts are. And let me drive the problem a little further into your heart. Psalm chapter 5, verse 4. Psalmist tells us evil may not dwell with God. I want to actually back up and read Psalm 5 to you. There's more being said than just verse 4. I want to read to you verse 4, 5, and 6 of Psalm 5. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. These are not just simple religious lessons before us. These are divine proclamations. God hates evildoers. The Lord abhors deceitfulness. God will not delight in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with Him. And yet, that's what God sees and identifies in the heart of every human being. You may attempt to hide your sin from God. You may attempt to conceal it in secrecy and think that you're succeeding. You may even think that you have God fooled just like you have everyone around you fooled. But let the truth of Hebrews 4.13 haunt you and be a reality to you. No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Wickedness may seem like it prevails and thrives in secrecy. Wickedness may seem like it, it's not brought to account in this life. It may seem like you're getting away with your sin. The truth is that we learn from verses like verse 21 in Colossians 1 is that God knows the truth of us. And God sees the truth of us. And God knows the wickedness of us. In Romans 2, 2, the judgment of God rightly falls on people like us. He sees all manner of sin. I've heard people ask the question, they wonder how a loving God could condemn humanity to eternal punishment. Because they don't know what it means. They ask that question in ignorance. Not knowing what it means to be alienated, hostile, and evil in the sight of God Almighty. Thirdly, real quick. And I'll try to get to some good news this morning. But thirdly from verse 21. 
This verse tells us how we see God. Not only tells us of the gravity of sin, that it separates us from God, puts us in opposition to Him, that it's classified as evil. Not only does it tell us how God views us, He sees us as separated, hostile and opposed and evil. It tells us how we view God. And that's a little bit more implied. As I've said before, this text reveals our general disposition as humanity apart from Christ. Generally, we're opposed to God. We kick against the goads. We, we push. We resist. We fight. We claw against the good will and purposes of God. We're hostile to His goodness. Foreign to the touch of His grace. Foreign to the warmth of His mercy and His love. And we think only and we delight only in the things that God hates. We resist Him. We fight against Him. We push against Him. And the worst part of it all, we see no problem with it. Just take an average glance of the world. Of the secularization all around us. The carnal existence of most people in our lives. And when it comes down to it, they care not for anything God has to say. They care not what God has to say about their lives or their actions or the condition of their heart. They care only about themselves. Paul's assessment in Romans chapter 1, verse 30, we are haters of God, is absolutely spot on. Unless God has breathed regeneration into our souls and quickened us to life, we are haters of God and all that God stands for. We go against Him at the very core of who we are. And apart from the intervening grace of Jesus, that's how we will enter into eternity. You, Paul says in verse 21, personally confronting us, you were once alienated, hostile, and evil. But praise God, verse 21 can be written in the past tense. That it doesn't have to remain present tense language. Because the very next verse, verse 22, tells us of the tremendous forgiveness offered through this Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, be forced to consider the depth of the wickedness of our sin. So that when we see the glorious grace of God, we would be elevated to heights unknown. Verse 22. He has stepped in. Take note of the phrase in verse 22. He has. Because though it's simple or, or uh, constantly put before us, we would do well to hold it up constantly. God is the one who has acted on our behalf. God is the one who sees those who are alienated, who sees those who are hostile, who sees those who are evil, and does something about it. God is the one who intervenes. He is the initiator of our salvation, the sustainer of our salvation, the completer of our salvation. Hebrews says He's the founder and perfecter of our salvation. He is the one 
who has done something. He is the one who has acted. He is the one who has, verse 22, reconciled. What a wonderful word. Reconciled. We, according to verse 21, were opposed to God. But according to verse 22, He wasn't necessarily fully opposed to us. He comes for those who are His enemies. Let me read to you Romans chapter 5, verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8. God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. The grace of God is infinite, church. The mercy of God is rich. The love of God is warm and gentle and tender and caring and compassionate and welcoming. And He looks at those who have alienated themselves from Him. He looks at those who are hostile and opposed and against Him. He looks at those who are doing evil deeds against His name and His law. And He acts to reconcile. He acts to save. He comes for His enemies. There's a strong parallel to this verse, Colossians 1.22. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, there are many parallels in the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians. But in verse 1 of Ephesians, or verse 4 of chapter 1 in Ephesians, it says this. Well, I'll back up to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Not only has God intervened and acted for those who cannot act for themselves, not only has God bridged the, gra- the uh, gap uh, to to reach those who have alienated themselves from Him. Not only has God determined to reconcile those who are hostile to Him, but He's done so from before the foundation of the earth. God's love for His people has reached from eternity past to eternity present to eternity future. His arm, as Isaiah 59.1 says, is not short that it cannot save. That salvation church is totally outside of us. It happens by God's initiative. It happens before the foundation of the world. Jesus says the same principle in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. You have to be born again. And by the way, Nicodemus, that's something you can't do. Our salvation is outside of us, put within us by God's grace and mercy. He has acted. Never let anybody lie to you and tell you otherwise. You are never saved by your own ability, your own goodness, your own morality, your own prayer, your own faith. You're saved because God has determined to reconcile you through His Son. And He has given you faith. And He has regenerated your soul. He has breathed life into you. 
He has called you to himself. He bridged the gap of your alienation. This word reconcile is perfect, isn't it? We talked about it last week. I'll remind you a little bit. It means to reestablish a relationship. It's unique though because according to verse 21, there was no previous relationship between us and God. We were again separated. So it carries with this sense of restoration, with, with it this sense of restoration. The same word is used that we saw in, in verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things. There it also carries a sense of the meaning of restoration. Restoring all things to their proper place and proper relationship with God. That means Christ in saving us restores us to the intended relationship we are to have with our maker. God had an intended purpose in the garden. And through our salvation, we are being restored to that purpose. It begins now through justification and sanctification, praise God, and it's culminated in heaven with our glorification. But the purpose of your salvation is that you would be reconciled to God, that you would be restored in relationship to God, glorifying Him. Verse 22, we also find the goal of this reconciliation. Isaiah 53, verse 6, the first part of verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us have turned to our own ways. Judges chapter 17 and the last chapter of Judges also says, Every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. That's a good description spiritually of, of all people. And yet we've been reconciled. So that, verse 22, the goal, we might be presented before God, holy, blameless, and above reproach. I am always awestruck at the vast change that God accomplishes in the Christian heart. Not only through the process of sanctification, because none of us are made perfect immediately, right? If you are, we need to talk later. It's, it's all a process. We progress through sanctification. We're growing and increasing over time, often slowly. But there are some things that are made immediate, yet not yet immediate, yet progressing. And these are some of those things. We're changed from alienated, hostile, and evil to now in Christ we're holy. We're blameless. And we're above reproach. And not just to enjoy the blessings of such things. But by necessity. Remember Psalms 5.4. Evil may not dwell with God. So what's the answer to our dilemma? How are we going to dwell with God? By being made holy and blameless and above reproach. By being made like God. This is the great exchange of the cross. Where Christ takes on our sins so that we might take on His righteousness. That we might be reconciled to God. That's the whole point of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17-21. through 21. We often focus on verse 21. Verse 17 says... 
Therefore, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God has made you new, verse 18 and 19 and 20, so that you could be reconciled and to give us the message of reconciliation. That we can tell the world, turn to God, come to God, be with God. Isaiah 55, let the wicked man forsake his ways and let the unrighteous one Give up his unrighteousness and let him turn to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to his God that he may abundantly pardon him. Give up your wickedness that you may be changed by Christ and reconciled to God. Be made righteous by Christ. That's, that's the way this reconciliation is accomplished in verse 22. He has now reconciled us who were alienated, hostile, and evil. He's reconciled us in His body of flesh by what? His death. So that through His death, He might change us. He might present us before God, not as alienated, hostile, and evil, but radically different, radically changed, radically redefined. We're now holy, blameless, and above reproach. How does Christ reconcile? How does Christ change you and I before God? It's by His body of flesh dying on the cross. His real, literal body of flesh truly, literally dying on the cross why one of my favorite words in connection to the crucifixion is the word substitute. Substitution. Christ was your and my substitute on the cross. Dying for our sin that we might have His righteousness. And in having His righteousness we are reconciled to God. This is the mind-blowing miracle of the Gospel. That those who are so low, and so hopeless, and so wicked, and so dirty, and so disgusting, and, and so revolting, creatures of dust who rebelled against their Creator, can be made holy and blameless and above reproach through Christ. That is a miracle. And that is the glorious truth of the Gospel. That's the wonder of this Jesus described in verses 15-20. through 20. That's the wonder of encountering Him. That's the wonder of meeting, meeting this Jesus who's the Lord of creation, the Lord of the church, the Lord of the new life of, that His resurrection secured. This grand and glorious and mighty Creator Jesus. When you encounter Him, you're radically transformed. Both in an instant and over a lifetime. You're taken from the furthest reaches of opposition to God to the very presence of God Himself. You span an infinite gap of holiness. You, trans, you, you traverse an infinite gap of righteousness. You walk through an infinite forest of perfection by the grace of Christ to be with God. Verse 23, real quickly. Paul issues a warning. 
Remember, this letter is written to help the Colossian Christians, to help the church because they're under the threat of false teaching. And we have defined false teaching uh, as always in some form or fashion devaluing Jesus. It either takes away from his sufficiency to save, his sufficiency to sanctify, his work on the cross, his work to, to hold you in salvation, whatever it may be. It devalues him in some form or fashion. So remember, Paul's writing this letter that focuses heavily on the grandeur and glory and power and sufficiency and supremacy and, and work of Jesus Christ. And he comes down and he says, remember, this elevated view of Jesus and what He has done in salvation by bridging this gap of alienation and hostility and evil to make you holy and blameless and above reproach. Remember that Gospel and it will be true of you if, if, verse 23, if indeed you continue in it. That's the warning. Let me pause and say that word if is not an if in the sense of if you check the boxes and do the work. It's an if in the sense of manifestation. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the gospel, which you heard and which I preach, if you cling to that gospel, if you cling to this Jesus, if you reject the false teaching, if you cling to this message in verse 21 and 22, then God has truly caused you to be born again. Real saving faith will be manifested in you. But if you turn from it, if you turn from this gospel, if you give up this message, if you reject this Jesus, if you give in to false teaching, then the transformation in verse 21 and 22 is not true of you. Oh church, we're under the constant threat and have the constant warning of verse 23. Because we live in a world that despises Jesus. And would do anything to remove Him and skew him. We have a very active enemy who is like a ravenous lion who's not fed often enough. And he would tear you to shreds by skewing your view of Christ and skewing your view of the gospel and causing you to compromise. The warning is always before us hold fast, continue in the faith. Be stable and steadfast. Cling to this gospel. That's Paul's point of the whole entire letter. Look at the grand and glory and majesty of Jesus. See how that supremacy and sufficiency has worked for your salvation and hold tightly to Him. Don't give up. Don't be swayed. Don't be led astray. Don't be lied to. Don't shift. The world church is going to look at us when we describe humanity as alienated, hostile, and evil. And they're going to look at us and say, you are uncompassionate and judgmental. But don't shift. Because that's the truth. A horse by any other name is still a horse. 
This is the truth. No matter what anybody says, humanity is sinful and needs a Savior. And when we stand up and say, it's only through Christ that we can be reconciled in His body by His death to be holy and blameless and above reproach before God. And the world says, that's not true. There are many ways to God. Don't shift. Continue. And when they call you narrow-minded and stubborn and irrelevant, don't shift. Hold the Gospel. Stand firm. And when the enemy comes and creeps into your own heart and your own mind and whispers into your own ear that maybe you need to do a little bit more and try a little better to be right before God, don't shift. For there's nothing you can do but cling to Christ. Don't shift. The warning is true for us all the time. This gospel is grand and glorious. It takes us from the lowest place of our existence and it brings us to the highest place of our existence and right fellowship with God as was intended. But the warning is real. You must continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the gospel. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't be lied to. Don't be led astray. Don't let your ears be tickled. Cling to the truth. As painful as it might be and as glorious as it is. I want to ask you now as we've come to the end of our time to take a moment of reflection with me. I ask you to be quiet. Let your heart be still and your mind be still for a moment. We're going to have a time of the Lord's Supper here in, in just a minute. But before we do, it would be good for us to um, let God's Word sit upon our hearts and our minds and to reflect upon it for a little bit. Have you experienced this transforming, saving power of Christ? Have you tasted of the mercies of God? Can you readily say with the passage, He alone has reconciled me? Where should you apply the warning in your life? What is threatening to turn you away from the truth of the gospel? Father, Your precious Word is sufficient. Sufficient to save. Sufficient to correct. Able to instruct and teach. To approve. And through it, You show us the light. The light of the Gospel and the light of Your Son. You bring the light to bear on the truthfulness of our own hearts. It's painful. It's not always fun. 
It's a necessary truth for us to realize that apart from you, we're hostile, alienated, and evil. And we need you to reconcile us. And we praise you that you do reconcile. Please, O oh God, perform your ministry of reconciliation today for any who might be lost. I would love to celebrate a conversion. To glorify your saving miracle. To glorify you as Savior and God. Lord, we're always under the threat to compromise. Our flesh fights against us. The world fights against us. We're prone to shift and wander. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Help us to continue upholding the truthfulness of this gospel. For anything less only assures people right into hell. Help us to hold firmly, stable and steadfast, not shifting, that we may proclaim your truth and excellencies to a dying, lost, and hurting world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.